0: All right everyone, welcome to the last episode of From the Stands the Cool Pick show for 2020. Again, this is the last episode of From the Stands as well because we are again as a reminder changing platforms to say or to for the show calling it The Player's Experience come January. So um, we're really excited for you to tune in to this last episode of 2020, and we have a very special guest again, Ian Todd Stottlemyre, two-time World Series champion with the Toronto Blue Jays and 15-year MLB alumni. Um, we're excited to chat with Todd about his experiences, uh, his favorite memories, and also about his new book that is coming out at the end of December. Before we bring Todd on, of course, we'd like to give a shout-out to our production team, Jay Salty Photography for all the production work that they're doing with the show, as well as our sponsors, Hush Blanket and The Great North Apparel. Again, guys, if you want stuff for Christmas and into the new year, just hit up the links in my bio for your discount codes where you'll be able to get some great gear at a discounted price. Uh, until for, further, Without further ado, rather, let's get Todd on the show and start talking some baseball and hear how he got the nickname, The Yellow Jacket. All right, Todd, the Yellow Jacket How are you, sir?
1: I'm great. Uh, honored, man. Ryan, I really appreciate it. I'm humbled and honored to hang out with you, though.
0: Thank so. you. Hey, man, I'm, uh, I'm just blown away you were able to get on the show after the last bit, like, bit we've been talking. I'm so thrilled that you finally uh, were able to do this. So, thank you for taking the time to chat.
1: You got it. So, tell me, where, tell me again where you came up with Yellow Jacket.
0: So I was chatting with Pat Hankin about 10, 11 episodes ago. We were talking about some like of his baseball memories and his experiences. And he brought up your name. And then he's like, yeah, Todd used to go by the name of Yellow Jacket. Because I think he said Rand Smolkins was the one that gave you that nickname. Because yeah. you kept buzzing around and you were always fired up the boys and uh, and everything. And so that's, uh, that's yeah. where I heard the nickname.
1: Yeah, I can still I can still hear Rance Monix, you know, yelling at me yellow jacket now in the clubhouse. So uh, great memory. I appreciate it. So,
0: of course, man. Um, So in 1983, you were drafted by the New York Yankees, but declined to sign. You then went on to attend Yakima Valley Community College and then played collegiate ball with the Harwich uh, Mariners, if I said that right. Um, You were then drafted again by the Cardinals, uh, but then again declined to sign again. How important was it for you to go through school before starting your baseball career?
1: Yeah, you know the the first time it was really difficult. You know, uh, you know, growing up and with my father in Yankee Stadium, and and uh, you know where that that whole dream really began was inspired. Was you know I wanted to follow in my father's footsteps, and and just growing up in that whole environment, atmosphere. It's like you know, everything was the Yankees to us and to our family of course and and then, to get drafted by the Yankees out of high school, it was like, "Wow, this is a dream come true and And I would tell you that it was difficult telling the Yankees no, but you know, my brother was a year in front of me in school and and he'd gone on to college and and uh you know, just being away from home for the first time. there's so much i mean getting the education is really important, but there's also more importance it's that you know, where you're on your own, you're trying to figure things out. And, and, and during that time, that, that young part of my life is, you know, I really needed to go through that. Um, and, and really needed to go through that stage. My mom was really, really pressing me to go to school. And, and it kind of came down to the last, you know, few days before I entered into school. And it was like, I had to make a decision and, and the Yankees were still pressing me to sign. And, my dad came to me and he's like, what are you going to do? And I said, I think I'm just going to go to school. And, and for me, it was kind of the easy way out. It was like, and, and my thought was school will be great for me being on my own, will be great for me getting an education. And then if I'm really good enough, after all of that, then there will, there will still be the opportunity to pursue the dream. And my thinking was, if I'm not good enough, well, then I'll fail early by signing with the Yankees out of high school. So if it's supposed to work out, it'll all work out. And and it was a, for me, it was a great step. I think that you know, for a lot of for a lot of high school athletes that that get the opportunity to either go pro or go into college, it's a tough decision. And I, I don't believe there's one way or a certain decision that says it's right. It, it's really something personal. For me, you know, I was man, I just turned 18. I was young. I was immature. I needed to grow up. And, and school was a great step for me.
0: And talking about the what you just said about like, if it works out, it works out. It certainly did work out for you. Because later in 1985, the Toronto Blue Jays selected you and you signed with them where you would spend seven seasons with them from 88 to 94. What was it like for you to be able to start your pro career with the Jays?
1: Well, you know, it's funny is the whole, my whole childhood, right. And growing up and, and wanting to pursue major league baseball, wanting to follow my father's footsteps. uh, The last thing that I ever thought about was that I would be pursuing that dream and that career in another country. And uh, so I got to tell you, you know, um, I wouldn't change anything. You know, Toronto was and the country of Canada was, was great to me. It was great to those teams. Um, You know, I always I always tell people it's like it was really it was really something because, you know, when when we were fighting to win our first world championship, you know, we were representing more than a baseball team. We were representing more than a city. We were representing a country. And even though we had people come from from all around the world, you know, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, the US, you had all these people that gathered on a 25 man team that was really pulling the same rope, had the same vision. And I would tell you that we took pride in ownership in being the team in Canada. So uh, I always say it was kind of like it was a sense of we really felt the heartbeat of being Canadian. And it was, I, I tell you, it was cool. And it was like, it was some of the It was absolutely hands down playing in Toronto, playing for the Blue Jays, winning world championships um, with the likes of Paul Beeston and Pat Gillick and Cito Gaston and and an incredible uh, leadership and management team. And then all of the guys. uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. It was just it was so unbelievable, so awesome. And it was uh, it was the best part of my playing career was playing in Toronto.
0: And feeding off that experience in Toronto and how much you loved the city and the country, we actually, I actually got the fortunate pleasure of, I think it was a year or two years ago, where the Jays hosted, uh, like, an anniversary game where you, uh, Hentgen, um, Rance, I'd, like, there was a bunch of guys that came and did, like, autographs and met with players and all that. So I actually got to meet you a couple of years ago in person. And not only yourself, but all the other guys that were there just – the, the glow of the look on your faces, being back in the stadium and being able to like interact with the fans and everything, it was just a, like a heartwarming feeling on my end as well.
1: Yeah, you know, it's like a brotherhood and a family that's never disconnected. And, and you know, you, when you think about Major League Baseball, I mean, uh, as you go through the season, you spend more time with your teammates than you do your own family um so those teammates and and that organization and just the way they treated us you know from the top down we felt we felt as if as if we were a family so and you know that's never been disconnected and when you win a world championship together and you go through all the ups and downs trials and tribulations you go through all of those things you know you go through a lot as a family and And it also connects that group. So when, when anytime I know that anytime that I'm invited back to Toronto and, and with the guys and the blue, I mean, it is, it is such an unbelievable feeling. It's hard to describe and hard to get people to understand, but it's just like, man, it's like family coming back together and it's just so special.
0: Now, you ended up winning two World Series in Toronto, and obviously, 92 and 93, as every Toronto Blue Jay fan should know. Um, But how much work and dedication went into being able to win the championships with the Jays, and how happy were you with the production, not just in the regular season, but the playoffs? Well, even
1: prior to me getting there, you know, and you look back on Toronto's history, 1985, they had a great club, man. 1987, you know, they just missed – Um, my first year was 1988, I think in 89, we went up against the A's we missed in 91 was a tough one. You know, we had a great year. We thought we had the right team. We had a great team of guys put together. Um, and, uh, and then we went up against the Minnesota twins and lost in the first round. And I'll tell you, that was disheartening. So I'll remember, I'll never forget 1992, man. Everyone came back to spring training hungry and, and, um, you know, hungry, not to, not to win the division, hungry not to win in the playoffs. It was like the hunger was not even to just get to a World Series. We wanted to be world champions. And that team, man, was just a dedicated team. It was a dedicated group of guys. It takes everything you've got, and then you got to have some luck also on your side. But, you know, it's it's the daily grind of in and out. People don't realize, but, you know, a lot of guys get to the stadium 12, 1 o'clock, and, And by the time the game is over and you're showered and you kind of, you know, kind of decompressed and all all the things from the game, a lot of times you're not getting home till midnight, one o'clock. So you're talking 12, 13, 14 hour days, literally for six and seven straight months um, to try to win that war. So it definitely takes a lot of work. You got to have some luck. You got to have the talent and you got to have people pulling the same vision. And, And, you know, what was neat is you got a bunch of all stars on that team. And, you know, and you, when you look back to 92, 93, and, and there was a number of guys that played on those teams that are today in the Hall of Fame. So you're talking about greatness. Well, they were able to – those great players, one of the things that was unique about them is they were able to check their ego at the door that it was bigger than, than just themselves. It was bigger than going four for four. It was about the team winning. And, and those teams had 7 o'clock, I always say, 7.05, they turned the lights on. 25 guys from all around the world coming together for one vision. And that's truly what it was.
0: That's incredible. And there's no better way to put it because that's exactly what team bonding is. And and that's where you lead to success. Now, talking about famous moments um, that go down in history again, 92 is going to go down in history 93 for back-to-back championships with the Blue Jays. I see that smile on your face. I know you know where I'm going with this. Um, in 93, game four against Philadelphia. this I feel like this is the most asked question with you, and I, had to, I have to ask it. You, you know, you tried to go from first to third when Roberto Alomar hit a single. There was some hesitation running from second to third resulting in you you getting a tag out, but in the process, you scraped your chin. This led for, I don't know why, but this led for some reason, the mayor of Philadelphia, Ed Randall, to show his displeasure, like through the paper or however he did it. What was it like for you to kind of feed off that, feed off that hunger of like wanting to prove him wrong, but also helping the Jays win a World Series and ultimately shut up the mayor of Philly?
1: Yeah, well, you know, look, if we go back, you know, my days in Toronto, you know, I was a very, you know, I was a very, very emotional player, and and um, you know, a lot of times I crossed the line, and and of course, you know, when the when the mayor of Philadelphia challenged me before my game four start, um, it's the one time that a starting pitcher goes in and meets with the media the day before he pitches. It's the only time is in a World Series. And and when I got in, I got in with Howard Starkman and he was the PR director. We got in and there's media and press everywhere and they just started firing. Hey, the mayor said this, the mayor said that, the mayor said he could hit you. The mayor said Toronto must be throwing the World Series. How could they be starting you? And being an emotional guy and a young guy, it was like, man, it was all the fuel I needed to respond. And, and then I got into... It was a, you know, it became me responding not so much to the media, not to, not to so much. How am I going to beat the Phillies? How am I going to get the Philly hitters out? It was all about me against the mayor, and all of my emotions came out. And uh, how he finally, Howard Starkman finally got me out of there, and and but the problem was, you know, my emotions had been basically triggered, and it was all I could think about is how dare this guy and this and that and. And by the time I got to the game, I got to tell you something. I was emotionally worn out by the time I got to that game. But, you know, as I'm running from first to second base, what's the smart thing? I'm a starting pitcher. I got my jacket on. You know, um, I play in the American League. We're not used to going to the plate. You know, I haven't haven't hit since I was a kid. All of these things. So the smart thing is coast into second base, stand there, because we got the meat of our order coming up. That, by the way, that is an incredible baseball logic, and that's smart. And, of course, I knew all of this. I grew up in the game. But something triggered in me, and something triggered right around second base was the ball went into center field. Lenny Dykstra doesn't have a good arm. He's never going to expect me to go to third. And I'm like, man, I'm going for it. And maybe part of it was the edge of the mayor and the whole deal. But then I, as I rounded second base, I always tell people I was running as hard as I could run, just not very fast. And I realized that as I was approaching third, I was in big trouble. So I just kind of like supermanned it. Like, I'm just going to go for it and just reach and dive. and 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 of course, my head first slide was chin first slide and literally hit chin first. That was the first body part to touch the ground and all of the pressure and tore my chin up and and literally I was, I blacked out for a couple seconds. And, and, uh, and I, and I got to remember, I remember Cito coming out there, I got to my feet and, and I was still a little blurry and dizzy and this and that. He says, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm good. Um, um, The truth of the matter is I I wasn't good, but, uh, and then I went back out on the mound and, and then just ended up pitching one of the worst games I've ever pitched at one of the biggest moments. And because of it, It was probably one of the most incredible learning experiences about me, my thoughts, my emotions, my responses, how to get ready, uh, blocking things out, all of those things. Um, Which is why, you know, Rance Mullenix called me yellow jacket because if you lit me up, man, I was on fire and it was my hair was on fire and I was just, I was just reacting and going as hard as I could go. But you know, the irony of it is I gave it everything I got. Was it smart? No. Did I still give it everything I had? Of course. You know, it, it, would I re- if the situation came up again, would I just coast into second and stop there? Of course. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we don't get to replay. We just get to reflect. You know, I don't get to do it over. I just get to reflect and learn and, and get better. But, uh, unfortunately... Or fortunately, I don't know, people remember it everywhere and, and they have a lot of fun with it. And I always have fun with it, too, because, um, you know, it was just one of those things where I was, going, I was going for it. I was all out. That doesn't make it smart, doesn't make it right. And, and I, always, I still say to this day, I was still, listen, I, I beat the throw. <laughs> I was safe. I just got called out.
0: <laughs> and, hey, you know what? Baseball's all about the fun and the experiences that come along with it. If you play just the standard textbook game of base to base plays or something like that, it's gonna be a boring game. You gotta make things exciting, right?
1: Well, I was a long ways from boring when I pitched, because anything could happen in the game I pitched. You know, it could have <laughs> ended up into a brawl. There are a lot of things that can happen and you know, it's funny you mentioned that is I remember one of the umpires. He was ahead head of the umpires. When I, It was after I retired and I went to a spring training game out here in Arizona. And he said, Todd, he says, you don't, probably don't know this, but I want to tell you something. He says, when you pitched, he said that all the umpires, we all knew we, we got to the stadium a little earlier than a normal game because we knew we had to mentally get ready. This was a huge compliment, by the way. He said, we knew we had to mentally get ready because we knew you were ready to go to war from pitch one, and we needed to be on our game. He says and – he, and here's what he said. He said, you actually made us better. And I kind of laughed with him, and I said, yeah. I said, you guys used to throw me out of games left and right. He says, well, you forced us to. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was fun. And, and to think and have a guy that's a head of the umpires association say, hey, we had to get ready because – We knew you were ready. Uh, I felt good about that because that's kind of how I approached the game. It was like I was going to leave it all on the playing field every time
0: I went out there. So that's that's fantastic. And yeah, you really have to like I play baseball with the Special Olympics. We've been to two national tournaments. We were represented uh, or we represented Canada at the North American Games just last year. And after a 15-hour bus ride, man, like, I get it. You have to get that mentality into the game and and get ready for it. Now, after your time with the Jays, you played with the Athletics, the Cardinals, the Rangers, and the Diamondbacks. Out of those five ball clubs that you played with, which experience do you think was your most favorite? And you know what? I'm going to take the Jays out just because we just talked about the Jays. Yeah, of
1: course. Of course, the Blue Jays. Uh, Other than the Blue Jays, I would tell you that – you know, St. Louis felt the most like home. Okay. And it probably felt more like Toronto than any other place. Um, I would tell you, it was fun playing with the Cardinals because they had a rich history. You know, you go to spring training and Red Shandys is there and Lou Brock is there and Bob Gibson is there. So, um, you know, I was in awe of that. It's like, you know, you got these guys, the Hall of Famers, these great Cardinal players. And, and you know, both Bob Gibson and Lou Brock both competed against my father in the 64 World Series so it felt it felt like family when i was in St. Louis much like Toronto so i would say that you know if i if if you said hey you got to pick one place i would tell you other than Toronto i would tell you that um, St. Louis and i got great memories there and it was fun being a it was fun being a cardinal isn't it funny that i say pick those two teams and their their both mascots are a bird Yep. That's
0: that. hey, it all I don't know what I don't know what that means by the way, but <laughs> anyways. It just means you like birds a lot and red and blue are your favorite colors. That's it. There you go. I love it. There you go. Now we had a fan question come in, um, asking about your brother. So your brother Mel Stottmile Jr., sorry, um, also played in the major and is currently the pitching coach with the Miami Marlins. How was right. it growing up with your brother both playing in the majors and now seeing him as a coach?
1: Well, you know, unfortunately for
0: him and his playing
1: career, it got cut short because of injury, you know, so, um, but you know, he pushed me and, and I probably pushed him and, and both of us, um, being very close in age, um, you know, we played on the same high school team, playing same American Legion team. So, you know, we were good for one another cause we were always pushing one another and, and that sort of thing. But I would tell you this, um, uh, because his career was cut short, he was also a great, um, like a great mentor for me. I could reach out to him. I could call him and what do you think, bro, of this and that or whatever. But he was also a huge cheerleader for my career. And, and, you know, he was the older brother and his career got 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 cut short. So that's not always the easiest thing to do. But, you know, he took it in stride. He was always a, a great cheerleader for me in my career and moving through my career. And I would tell you now seeing him as a coach um not just for the Marlins but he's coached with the Diamondbacks he's coached with the with the Mariners and if you really look at he's really created a name for himself to develop young major league pitchers pitchers into stars and and you know he had a closer with Seattle that ended up winning you know the the Rolade's uh relief award and had more saves than anybody in the game and now he's got these young guys in Miami that have all of this raw talent but if you you know you take a look at those pitching staff and it's like man those guys just keep getting better and better and better. And there's a reason for that. And I believe that my brother, Mel Jr., is a big part of that reason and guiding them to their greatness. So he's going to do great things down there in Miami. You know, he's got a great manager and Don Mattingly. they got a great owner. That guy's name is Derek Jeter. So it's a group of winners that are coming together to, you know, to develop a major league team. I think you'll see big things from the Marlins over the next two, three, four years. And I think my brother will have a lot to do with it. I'm so proud of him because, um, you know, he's really made a name for himself in the game as a coach. And, you know, he's kind of following in my father's footsteps as far as the coaching career. And, you know, he's going to do great things. I, I keep hoping and praying that he can get to a world championship and, and be able to ch- get a chance to, to feel that, to go through it, to experience it and, you and to win that ring because at the end of the day, you know, everyone that puts that uniform on is playing for that ring. So I hope he gets his, his shot at
0: it. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, I've been a fan. So being a Jays fan, I think you, you kind of, you can't like the New York Yankees just because they're one of the biggest rivals of the Jays. Right. However, I love Derek Jeter. I, I watched him growing up, um, watched a few Yankee games, saw his playing style, saw how, positive of, of a role model he is outside of the sport so i think yeah like i completely agree that team's going to go very well or very far over the next few years and um yeah it would be great to see them uh get a ring and, and have a chance to fight for one as well Yep, for sure, for sure. Now, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I chatted with Pat Henkin, and he mentioned the yellow jacket comment. One question I had asked him, we were talking about, like, mentorship and and players that kind of helped guide him uh, throughout his playing career, and he mentioned your name. And so what I want to ask you is that, and one of the favorite aspects that he said that stood out Um, to him about you is that you were a gamer because you were always tough. You had everyone's back. And then, of course, you were known as the Yellow Jacket. Um, But since I asked him, what was one of your favorite aspects about Pat?
1: Well, you know, I, I would mirror it. He was a gamer, man. And, you know, I got a front row seat to watching him come up and then develop become Cy Young award winner, you know, the first Cy Young award winner for Toronto, I believe, in the history. But this guy was the real deal, man. He was a big – you know what I loved about Pat Hinkin is he was a big game pitcher, man. And he would – you know, he would also tell you, you know, hey, man, you nervous about going and pitching this game? Yeah. He would say, yeah, I'm nervous, but I'm ready. And I got to tell you, you you can't help but love the way he would compete on the mound. So – Everything he said about me, I would tell you that it's exactly, actually, how I felt about him. I'm honored and and humbled that he would even mention me in in your guys' discussion because you know he was a better pitcher than I than I ever was, and and he was a big game pitcher. He won a, he won some huge games uh, for the Blue Jays. He won a lot of games, um, you know. So. Uh, When I look back on his career, it's like, you know, his 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 pitching career was better than my pitching career. And he was a better pitcher than I was. So I'm honored and humbled that he had great things to say about me. But I would just tell you that for me, I was in front of him. I was a little bit older. I got there a little bit sooner. So I really got a front row seat to watching him become great because he wasn't a good pitcher. He was a great pitcher.
0: And like you said, it's all about that team bonding, getting to feed off one another, helping each other out on the mound or wherever it is to just get better in the sport, right?
1: You know, we had a cool, we had a cool pitching staff. I think about Hinkin, and I think about Guzman, I think about the guys. You know, um, you know, Jimmy Keys, and 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 you know, I I think about these guys: Dave Steed, Jack Moores, David Cohn, David Wells. I can go on. You know, you know, all of these guys that would take the ball as a starting pitcher. And Jack Morris, I mean, on any given day, someone could go out there and throw a shutout. You know, it could be, it could. of course, Jack Morris. You know, you mentioned Jack Morris, Dave, Steve, Jimmy. Of course, but Guzman could go throw a shutout. Hank could go throw a, shout, a shutout. I could possibly go throw a shutout. On any given day, whoever had the ball that day um, had the potential of throwing a shutout. And that's one of the reasons why our clubs were so good is because – our starting pitchers had the capability to stop losing streaks, and Pat Hinken was uh, was a big reason why. You know we did so well because he could stop a losing streak and start a winning streak, uh, literally by taking the ball, going out there, and giving us nine great innings. So
0: that's remarkable and you know what while so i'm in 90s baby so i was only two and three years old when the when you guys won the world series but just being able to go back and watch some of the footage and the old style clips and see the gameplay it's truly remarkable again that team bonnie and like you said just being able to go out there get the job done and potentially throw those shutouts um without any questions yeah, yeah for sure now you retired from playing the game in 2002 how was it for you to be able to leave the game on your own terms after a tremendous 15-year career and two World Series championships?
1: Well, probably easier for me than most guys because I was truly done. Um, injuries had had crept up on me. You know, my shoulder was shot. My elbow was shot. My hip was shot. Um, you know, physically, I knew I was done. And there's something about something about knowing personally when you're done. The problem, I think, with most guys is – Maybe they don't get offered a contract and that's it. They still feel like they can compete. And the transition is hard. It was easier for me because I knew I'd left it all on the field. I knew I didn't have anything left in the tank uh, for me to give. So it was an easier walk away for me. And, And the other thing, too, is, you know, growing up in the game and then playing the game, my whole life was Major League Baseball. It was either my father playing, coaching, or me playing. So... You know, when I was done, I welcomed the break and I thought, man, I'll take a year off and travel and have a summer vacation, spend time with my family and and just try to kick back on this. So I would tell you that I believe that my transition was probably easier than most guys.
0: Okay. Yeah, because the thing is, is that there's so many, especially nowadays, there's so many injuries that like you, you have to deal with you, you alluded to it with Mel Jr., And how his career was cut short and you never know, like tomorrow is never promised. So you have to fight and do what you have to do now to try and prepare for the next day. Um, So it's on one hand, it's, it's easier, but on the other hand, it's never easy going from the pitching man spending the time with the guys to to spend the time at home. You know, it's
1: crazy. I was 34 at the time. So my career was cut short, but I still got the 15 years in, you know, so you look at 15 years, you say, man, that's a long time for a pitcher. I was only 34 years old i was in the middle of my prime i was pitching as good as i've ever pitched and then injury finally took me out so you know some guys you know get the blessing of keeping their bodies together and pitching to 38 39 40 and above um other guys you know like my brother he was in his 20s uh for me i was 34 so uh, for my father he was 32 years old and his career was cut short so uh, injuries have have its way and and when you play a sport and it puts all the demands on your body to compete at the highest level uh, one of the things that are going to pop up sometimes is injuries and some of those injuries um, are severe enough to end careers so knowing that you know as I always tell people I go listen this is a short window you don't know how long it's going to come and and in, in life you made a you, you, you said it perfectly in life. We don't know we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And, and, and it's why it's like, I, one of the things I stress to people all the time is wherever you are, be there, make the most of it and be grateful for it. Make the most of it, be grateful for it because we don't have any idea what tomorrow looks like. Exactly. So, yeah.
0: Now, since your retirement, you have put your knowledge of the game into a book. Um, what's, sorry, can you remind me what the book is called? So the first
1: book I wrote was, um, um, the, uh, your nine steps to majorly, uh, achievement Relen- the relentless success is the title of the book, but it was nine steps to majorly, uh, achievement. And then I just wrote a new book. I wrote it this, uh, during the summer going, as we were going through COVID and it's going to be released, uh, December 29th. Um, uh, that book is called the observer, a modern fable for mastering, uh, on mastering your thoughts and emotions.
0: Okay, cool. Now, what drove you behind wanting to write a book, and what's the key message behind them?
1: So, the first book five years ago was re- really written because you know I spent some time with my father, and and he was going through a tough time, and and uh, you know he was in this battle for his life. He was fighting multiple myeloma, blood cancer, and what you know I just realized watching him go through the wars and watching him fight for this thing, um, you know, it struck me that I was watching the greatest warrior of my life. And because he refused to play victim, and he refused to give power over the count, uh, over his can cancer, he was given power over his future and fighting for his life and seeing the good in things. And it, and it blew me away. And, and, you know, I, you know, when I was up with him up in Washington, as he was going through this battle, I just realized that you know i've i've had a great father and 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 he's been a father and a coach and a best friend and a mentor and he's been all of these things for my life and and everything all his lessons and all his mentorship was on me trying to become the best version of myself and then also not only that but being around some of the greats you know Cito Gaston and Tony LaRussa and 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 then all of the guys that I played with and and the guys on those championships to learn from each and every one of them to have a front row seat to all of their greatness you learn so many things but as you learn you know you apply it so that you can get better but what i realized when i was with my father was i was like man I, i've never i've never shared lessons that i got from some of these greats with other people to help them have greatness and i just at that moment, I was like, man, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to write a book on where I was struggling and the people around me that helped me, you know, get back on my feet and then help me get to the next step. And I decided to write Relentless Success uh, five years ago. Um, after I wrote the book, I still had this book burning in me um, called The Observer. And, and the reason that I, I recently just wrote this book and it comes out December 29th, it's like, it's like I'm so proud of it. And I put my heart and soul into it because it was really my life. and 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 it's a you know, it's a story with characters. Uh, but those characters go through some of my real life events. And you know, we were talking about the ninety three World Series earlier, and it was kind of it was kind of you know what led me to writing this book all these, you know, twenty something years later, you know, it's like um called the Observers because you know, after the ninety three world series, Uh, You know, I got back home to Florida and I just remember looking in the mirror and and what, you know, if you looked at me from the outside, here I am. I lived out my childhood dream. Uh, I just became a back-to-back world champion in Toronto. I'm making millions of dollars. It looks like, man, this guy's got it all. And that's how it looked from the outside. The problem is when I stared in the mirror, I didn't like the guy looking back at me. And matter of fact, I hated the guy looking back at me because the guy looking back at me had given my little brother a bone marrow transplant um, 12 years earlier, put my little brother into a coma, and then eventually took his life. So when I looked at me, I didn't like what I seen. Matter of fact, I couldn't stand myself. And because when I was 15 and my little brother was 11, you know, I gave him a bone marrow transplant. That transplant ultimately put him into a coma and then took his life. So when I left that hospital after he'd taken his last breath, of course, I was sad and and it was horrible. You know, my mother and father had to bury their 11-year-old son and, and, and my 11-year-old brother. Well, I was 15 at the time, and, and I left with hate. I hated the world, because my little brother had just gotten taken away from me. but I also felt guilty. I was like, if it wasn't for my marrow, maybe he would be alive today. So I looked at myself as the guy that had something to do with him dying. I felt like the murderer of my little brother, because it was my marrow. And I lived with that for twelve years, and it was finally, and it, and it, and I never healed it. And I, I just, and every time I got into a situation where I couldn't control something, the hate and guilt, all of that emotion would rise to the surface, and what it would do, it would ruin the mastery of the moment. I would destroy it. Sometimes it would be into a fight on a baseball field. Sometimes I would lose my mind. Sometimes it was off the field. Sometimes on the field. But when I got home in 1993. Here's what I realized. I said, man, I'm a better pitcher than I'm showing. I didn't like the way I was performing on the field. I said, man, I know I'm better than this. But there was another problem. I didn't like the way I was performing in life. So I realized at that time, I was like, man, I need help. And I reached out to a guy by the name of Harvey Dorfman. He was the mindset guru of Major League Baseball. And I called him. I said, Harvey, I said, this is Todd Stottlemyre. And he goes, man, I've been waiting on your call. I didn't even know Harvey knew who I was. And I said, man, I said, Harvey, I need help. He goes, I know. So we booked an appointment. I, I, I literally uh, drove across the state. We spent 12 hours in a hotel room together. And I'll never forget it in the first hour. He asked me an important question. He said, Todd, he says, would you do it again? I said, man, do what? He said, would you give a bone marrow transplant to your little brother again? Man, I just broke down. I lost it. And I said, man, Harvey, I do it every minute. I do it every hour. I do it every day. I do it it over and over. And I do it as many times. He says, well, didn't you already do it? I said, yeah. He said, did you do everything you could do? I said, yeah, Harvey, I did everything I could do. He said, Todd, you didn't kill your little brother. You need to let it go. You've already done everything you could have possibly done. And he said to me, let it go and forgive yourself. You're not the reason. And I got to tell you something. He gave me permission to forgive myself something I wasn't willing to do at 15, 16, 17, 22, 25, 20. I wasn't willing to. I carried it with me. So I was living in the prison of my own unforgiveness. And when he said, let it go, it was the most freeing thing in the world. The last hour of our conversation, he put me on a seven day challenge. Here's what he said He said, over the next seven days, you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to respond emotionally to any challenges or any hurdles. He says, all you can all I want you to do, and here was the key. He goes, I want you to observe how you're thinking. I want you to observe how you feel. And you're not allowed to respond. You can only document your feelings. Seven days. That seven-day challenge changed my life. It was the becoming of becoming the observer of my life. Think about it. There's a stimulus and there's a reaction. And a lot of times we react out of stimulus and then we're sorry for it later, you know? And you think about the world today and how much hate there is and how much, and our response, our knee jerk responses. And it's like, there's so much, there's so much more hate today than there is love being presented everywhere. Well, I lived there. I lived in hate. I lived in guilt. So me writing this book, The Observer, was all about teaching people to step away from themselves, to understand what are their thoughts and to have tools to do thought replacement. How do you feel? Because listen, thoughts drive emotions and emotions drive the destiny of your life. I didn't like the direction of the destiny, where it was going. I didn't like my responses. I didn't like my performances on or off the field. I was like, man, I'm better than this. I want to change. So it really has been driving me to write this book, um, The Observer. And, you know, there's there's about 50-plus different models and success principles in there. It's a toolbox for people to help people pursue a better version of themselves. See, I just happened to be at that place where I was like, I didn't like who I was. I looked in the mirror. I couldn't stand that guy. And I was like, man, I want to change. So for me, it was my mess that I needed to overcome. That was personal to me. And today I share my mess with you because because I've overcome it, it's today it's my message. And my message is, you know, it's like, listen, if you're hanging on to something, you got to let it go. Because if you're hanging on to it, um, some, a past circumstance, a current circumstance, if you're hanging on to some, someone you need to forgive, or if you're hanging on to somebody Maybe that's somebody you need to forgive as yourself. You're living in a prison that you built. And, and what it really means is you're destroying the best version of yourself in the present moment. That was me. And then there's all the high performance, the things that I got from Pat Hinken, the things I got from Cito Gaston, the, the things I got from those championship teams, all the lessons I got my, from my father, they're all in principles weaved inside this story to help people. Pursue their potential, and it's kind of the you know I'm 55 today. Guess what I'm doing? I'm I'm pushing. I'm pushing the envelope every day, trying to just get a little bit better, so I can literally push my potential up the mountain. That's it. That's the observer. I'm so proud of this book, Ryan, like never before. There's a lot of truth to the story, even though you know it's a story and. And, and And there's the real principles, real models inside this book and and I just put everything I could into, it and it was it was really me, uh, through other characters in the book, sharing some life story, to try to help people out, to try to help people pursue their potential.
0: Well, I know, Todd, I'm excited to get it when it comes out. Um, I think it's very important, especially like you touched on in today's day and age and today's world with everything that is happening, that you need to share your story and you need to share how to like forgive yourself and forgive others for for those barriers otherwise it's not going to be a barrier that you can hop over at any point in your life so i think i thank you for sharing that message and uh, and uh for everyone that's watching make sure december 29th the observer by todd Stallmeyer, go get it go get it wherever you shop your books um you will not be disappointed with the book again i'm excited to get it uh, myself and, and I'll let you know how, how what i think cuz i'm excited yeah, awesome man
1: yeah you can pre-order it now so you can go to amazon or barnes and noble or come to my website at toddofficial.com and and we can direct you on where to where to order the book but we can pre you can pre-order now and, and like i say man it's like you know i put everything i could into this thing so i'm really proud of it
0: Amazing. And one other thing that I'm really surprised at is you do not look 55, sir. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. So I just have a couple more questions for you um, that relate to baseball and your, your career with just MLB as a whole. You spent, as you said, 15 years with MLB. You got to see a bunch of different stadiums. I think probably all of the stadiums at this point. Um which stadium was your outside of Toronto again, was your favorite to pitch in or to just travel to?
1: I loved pitching in Yankee Stadium. Um, you know, just growing up there as a kid. Um, not only that, you know, when you're in New York, they got some tough fans. So it's like uh they're gonna be tough on you. You know, you're coming in there as an opposing player and and I loved it. I loved the feeling of of feeling like the underdog, but uh I also feeling like the underdog, but at the same time, it was like you know all those memories of growing up. You know, Yankee Stadium was my playground. So competing against the Yankees, being out there on that mound in Yankee Stadium, I mean, I just I cherished it. I loved being out there.
0: And it's a wholesome feeling, like you said, with your dad and your brother and everything, just able to full circle and and bring it up for sure, for sure. Everyone is going to have different um, advice or different what I like to call in this segment words of wisdom that they want to share with other individuals, whether it's the next generation of athlete getting into sport or someone that wants to further their career. What kind of words of wisdom would you want to share with those next generation of athletes?
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing is, is just remember everything's hard, you know, and, and uh, everything worthwhile is uphill. It's going to be an uphill battle. And what you do daily counts. And it's like, you know, it's like, it's the things we do every single day. It's that consistency and consistency is the mother of mastery. Just understand, play the long game. You know, there's no, there's no hacks to play in major league baseball. There's no like a baseball hack or a shortcut, man. You got to go or any sport or, or to, to represent any kind of greatness in your life. Play the long game. Uh, what you do daily, every single, every, every time what you do daily counts, and just understand everything's hard. You know, I always say, you gotta pick your pain. You see, you know, um, for me, the dream was real. So me not um, making it to Major League Baseball would have been painful. But guess what? To make it to Major League Baseball, the dedication, the discipline, everything you had to go to was also painful. I had to pick my pain. I tell people all the time, listen, um, being poor and not having enough money at the end of the month, that's painful. Well, to be financially free, I want you to know something. In order to get there, it's going to be painful. I tell people if you're married, divorce is painful. Marriage is painful. You see, at the end of the day, you know, being overweight, out of shape and bad health, painful, getting in great shape, that's going to be painful. At the end of the day, what I would tell the young people is you're going to have to pick your pain. But if you think that there's not going to be pain, there's not going to be challenge, there's not going to be some suffering, there's not going to be some setback, man, you're not living in the real world. And, I, and then the last piece of this that I would say is go fail every day because the failures are the teachers of what you need to do to get better in order to have the success that you desire. Go fail your face off.
0: Incredible. Well, Todd, thank you so much for sharing your experiences, sharing your favorite moments. Uh, Again, guys, The Observer comes out December 29th. You can pre-order it now. Get the book. You won't be disappointed. And Todd, thank you again for taking the time to be on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Man, I appreciate it. I'm humble and honored. Thanks for reaching out to me and your persistence and uh you know, I'm glad I I got the uh got the opportunity
0: to share with you today. So, thank you, sir. Awesome. All right, until next time. Take care. All right, guys, that was 15 tie 15 year MLB alumni, Todd Stottlemyron, two-time World Series champs with the Toronto Blue Jays. Thank you again to Todd for taking the time to be on the show. And to everyone, uh, that does it for 2020. It was a wild ride this year, and we look forward to having you tune in to more episodes in 2021. Have a great holiday. Stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you uh, in a few weeks in 2021.